Well, praise be Jesus Christ this morning. Uh, friends, we are uh, continuing this, this brief sermon series. We're going to do this for just one more Sunday where what we're doing is that we're looking at the pre-birth stories of Jesus. In particular, we're going to look at the, uh, the, the mother of our Lord, the way Luke's gospel presents her in his opening chapters. Now, you will have already noticed that there's a couple more readings uh, from the Old Testament and the New Testament than we typically have. There's a reason for that. Uh, some of you may have already picked up why. I'm going to get back to that in a few minutes because I want to show you something that's really interesting, and I love it when the Scriptures do this for us. Uh, but first, before I do that, let's just uh, focus for a couple of minutes on um, a couple of points that we find here in our gospel reading regarding Mary's visit to her cousin Elizabeth. Now, uh, for background, who was Elizabeth? Elizabeth was Mary's cousin, but she was also very well advanced in years, and yet she was now pregnant with a child. So Elizabeth's uh, pregnancy with Zechariah was kind of a, a miracle in and of itself, kind of reminds us of Sarah and Abraham, who were much older in years when they gave birth to Isaac. And, uh, and the child in Elizabeth's womb would grow to become John the Baptist, this great prophet who would preach repentance you know, out in the wilderness just before Jesus enters the scene. So what I want us to do is I want to pick up right where we left off last week. Now, you remember after uh, at last week, the angel Gabriel visits Mary. Gabriel gives Mary her mission, which is to be the mother of the Lord. And you'll remember how Mary gave this unreserved wholehearted, unequivocal, total, yes, here I am. I will do it, whatever you want, O oh Lord. So she says yes to her mission, and notice in our lesson what happens next. Mary immediately sets out with haste to care for her cousin Elizabeth. And I just want to park it there for just a moment because I love that expression, with haste. With quickness, without delay, with this sense of zeal and with this sense of urgency. I love that. Mary receives her mission to be a bearer of Christ and boom, off she goes into, into her mission with haste. In other words, Mary refuses to keep Jesus to herself. You see what I did there? She refuses to keep Jesus to herself. And what I love about this is that really right here, Mary is the model of what it should be for the church, of what it should be for all of us. If you're baptized, you and I, we are bearers of Christ. We should be going out with haste, with zeal, with this energy to fulfill our mission to share Christ with others. And yet, and I'm not going to harp on this. I've talked about this long enough and enough times. And yet, there's kind of this general uh, in the church. You know what I mean? It's like this cloud, this little fog of malaise. It's just this apathy, this sense of indifference uh, in the church when it comes to our mission. We've gotten sleepy, a little sleepy, when it comes to these things, you know, Jesus would later on say to his disciples, these are really the texts for Advent. He would say to his disciples, stay awake, friends, stay awake. Be alert. Keep watch. Don't fall asleep. And yet we know the most dramatic moment in Jesus' life just before his arrest, they fell asleep. They couldn't stay awake. So we're falling asleep on the job. And yet Mary shows us, man, we should be approaching our, our mission with with zeal, 
with, with energy, not kind of, well, well, whatever, I guess I'll go to church. No, no. You know, I'm thinking um, maybe in February during Lent, thinking about this, we might do a sermon series on the seven deadly sins. You heard of these? That might be fun. <laughs> it might not be fun. I don't know. But I was thinking as I was studying uh, uh, this week that I think the greatest vice of the seven that are really plaguing the church nowadays would be the vice of sloth. Sloth. Now, usually we think sloth means, you know, hanging out on the couch, you know, eating potato chips all day, not doing anything. Actually, no. That's not what the deadly sin of sloth is. So here's a preview. If I do a sermon on sloth, here's your preview. See if you remember this. The classic symptom of spiritual sloth is actually being so busy and so overscheduled and so frenetic with the concerns of this life that we become negligent and lazy in the work of God. Isn't that interesting? Sloth. We are becoming so busy that we're neglecting what should be our primary work. Mary, she goes out with, with, with haste, you know, with, with zeal. We, we need this. She goes out with this, this great energy. I just want to say one more comment. Uh, some of the great spiritual masters of Christianity, they say this. I love this. They say that the more Jesus Christ is alive in us, the more Jesus Christ is growing in you and in me, and Jesus ought to be growing in us. We should be growing in our relationship with the Lord. They say that the more Christ is alive in us, the younger our spirits should be becoming. We should be becoming younger in our spirits. Now, we're certainly not becoming younger in our bodies. We know that. I was reminded during the, uh, the, the live nativity, Shane, your hair is just getting grayer and grayer. Are you okay? Oh. Um, but, but, really said that. So, we should be coming, we're getting older in our bodies, but we actually should be becoming younger in our spirits. And the reason the masters, the spiritual masters say this is that if you think about God, God is outside of time. We're in time. We're aging. But God is on the outside of time. So, the teaching is that, you know, if you think about it, it's a brain teaser that God is actually younger than the universe, God is actually younger than we are. We're in time. God is not. And therefore, the Holy Spirit of God that wants to dwell in us, the Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit is this, this energetic, youthful power that wants to dwell in us. And we should be becoming younger. I'll just say as a testimony that, you know, I, I, I'm older than I was 20 years ago before, when I started following the Lord. I was that cook at Chili's. But I will tell you this. I've been spending more and more time with the Lord. I've been praying more and more for the Holy Spirit every day. And I, I can honestly tell you that I feel more youthful in my soul than I've ever felt. My body's getting older. That's true. But, man, I'm feeling just more alive in the Lord. See, that's what we should be feeling. We should be getting younger in our spirit. So Mary, she sets out. She goes with haste, with this youthful energy to fulfill her mission to be a bearer of Christ, to care for Elizabeth. And by the way, I left this out at the last service. Maybe they'll catch it online. By the way, Mary goes to serve Elizabeth. Let me just say to you right now, is there anybody in your life, maybe it's a relative, maybe it's a friend, is there anybody who's on your heart this morning and has been on your heart who really needs your care 
or needs your help. And what I want to say to you is a great way to respond to this is, man, don't put that off. Could you just go out and just offer that person the care you've been thinking about? If there's someone in your life, make haste, make haste. Share Christ through your service with that person. Okay, so Mary makes haste. She goes to the home of Elizabeth, and notice what happens in our uh, lesson. Elizabeth's child leaps in Elizabeth's womb, and then what does it say about Elizabeth? Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. My brothers and sisters, this is what evangelism in its best form should look like. You know, Mary's like the first missionary for Christ. She goes out in mission with haste. She's also the first evangelist. Right here we see it. You know, in that word evangelism, it's got such a bad rap. You know, we think evangelism is, you know, this kind of obnoxious cajoling and kind of shaking people by their lapels. You know, you've heard me make fun of, you know, that joke. You know, we, we think evangelism is going to somebody and saying, hey, is this seat saved? Are you? <laughs> but that's not what evangelism is. You know, evangelism really, you know what the best kind of evangelism is? And we're all called to be evangelists, everybody. The best kind of evangelism is, is when we, we catch other people on fire with the Lord. I mean, the best evangelists are those who just love Jesus and whose relationship with the Holy Spirit is just catching. It just catches others. Isn't it interesting that Mary just had to walk into the house and boom, you know, Elizabeth, she catches fire. She is filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, the divine life in Mary, she had the Lord in her, in her body. This divine life of Jesus just spilled out from her and on to Elizabeth. And then all of a sudden, Elizabeth is filled with the same Holy Spirit. This actually made sense to me. I mean, if you think about a big bonfire or something, I mean, those who are closest to a fire radiate to a higher degree the fire's heat and light. So if you're close to a fire, you're, you're going to be more you know, consumed by the heat, by the light of this. Think about Mary here, everybody. Mary was at the very source of that fire. Nobody was closer to the fire than Mary was in this moment in her pregnancy. And it was that fire that was dwelling within her, the Holy Spirit, that caught Elizabeth on fire. That's what I mean by evangelism. Evangelism at its best means we are radiating the divine life of the Holy Spirit onto other people around us. We're not cajoling them. We're just radiating the love of the Holy Spirit. And the effect, the effect of the Holy Spirit on people's lives is always, and we see it here, it is always joy. That's the effect we should be having on other people, producing joy. What did Elizabeth say? She says, the child in my womb leaped. We're going to come back to this, that word leap. The child in my womb leaped for joy at Mary's spirit-filled presence. You know, people, I hope you know somebody like this. People who are in love with the Lord, not only do they project joy on other people, they also just produce joy in other people. I was thinking this week, you know, in, in the Catholic Church, you know, when they're trying to make somebody a saint, it takes a long time. But one of the official questions that they ask about the person considered to become a saint is, did that person produce joy in other people? Because that's what great Christians do. 
I want to just ask you, like, what, what do you project? What, what do I, I thought about this. Like, what do I project on the other people? What are you projecting on the other people? I mean, when people are around you, I mean, are you like, everything's terrible. Eh, world's going you know where. I mean, are we projecting that? I mean, are, we, are people leaving our presence, you know, with a sense of, ugh, I don't measure up. You know, and we all have our bad days. I'm not saying all the time, but I'm just as a general disposition do you project joy in others? Or, or do when people, when, they, when they're in our presence, do they say, gosh, you know, I, I want what she's got. I, I want that kind of joy in my life. See, everybody, can you just understand that that's what evangelism is? It's, it's when you catch other people on the fire of the Holy Spirit, and it produces this joy in them. But you've got to love the Lord. You've got to want to love the Lord. You know, want Him into your life every day. And, and this can happen to us. I mean, I catch everybody on fire, but if you're an ember... If you're a glowing ember, you'll catch somebody on fire. Okay, so let me just wrap this sermon up. I want to show you now uh, something I think is really interesting. Um, And I think that Luke, the writer of this gospel lesson, I think he really wants us to see this. But the only way we can see it is to kind of slow it down a little bit. So I'm going to do kind of a Sunday school lesson here. If you're watching me right now uh, online uh, or Facebook on the computer, this might be a little confusing, but uh, I would encourage you, if you're listening, go to 2 Samuel chapter 6. Read that a little bit later. What I want to do is I want to compare our first lesson with David with our gospel lesson and show you something. Now, it's going to be a lot of this, I guess. Maybe what you should do is just kind of park it on one of the two lessons. Um, and then I'll walk you through this. Let me give you a quick context, though, of what's going on in our first lesson with King David. King David, where we've picked up in 2 Samuel, he's just been announced the new king. He's the new king of Israel. And one of his first actions is that he is bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to its rightful place in Jerusalem, the Ark of the Covenant. Now, remember what the Ark of the Covenant was in the Old Testament. Don't think of the was it the Harrison Ford movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark? Everybody's face melts off. It's not that. Um, what, what was the Ark of the Covenant? The Ark of the Covenant was in the temple, and it was considered to be the true dwelling place of the presence of the God of Israel. The true dwelling place. This is where the Lord dwelt, and it was inside the Holy of Holies in the temple. Now, the, the Ark of the Covenant it was kind of a, um, a case. It was gold. It was beautiful. And you could open it up. And inside the ark were three relics. Do you remember what the three relics were? Well, you had the tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments, God's Word on stone. You had the manna, uh, the bread, that miraculous bread that God used to feed the Israelites with after they left Egypt, their slavery in Egypt. So it had the manna. The third thing that it had was uh, Aaron. Aaron was... um, He was the first high priest of Israel in the days of Moses. It was his staff, his stick. I don't want to say stick, but it was his staff, his priestly staff. Okay, so King David here is demonstrating his authority as the new king of Israel by bringing the ark back. Now, it is interesting that the ark of the covenant later would just disappear. We have no idea what happened to the ark. There's all kinds of conspiracy theories about this. Area 51's got it, you know, or something. Um... But all these, we don't know what happened to it. But there was a tradition that when the true king of Israel would return, the Messiah, the Ark of the Covenant would return with the Messiah. And that's a clue. Okay, so finally, let's just compare a couple of things with these two stories. Let's start with the first story of David. 
the, uh, this lesson says that David, King David, the new king, set out to retrieve the ark out of the house of Abinadab, which is the second sentence there. And the house of Abinadab was on a hill. It was a hill. It was in hill country. Mary set out and went where? To the hill country where Elizabeth was. Now, in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant, what does David ask? He says, how can the Ark of the Lord come to me? In the presence of Mary, what does Elizabeth say? How has this happened? Why has this happened that the mother of the Lord comes to me? Very similar in language. What does David do before the Ark of the Covenant? He danced. That's what it says. He danced. Using the exact same verb in the gospel lesson, what does John the Baptist in utero do in the presence of Mary? He leaps. The same word for dance. David leapt. John leaps in the presence of Mary. David remained where the ark was for how many months? Three months. How long did Mary stay with Elizabeth? Three months. Now this is cool. Do you see what Luke is trying to say? He's trying to say that the ark of the covenant has returned. And it's returned in the person of Mary, who is pregnant with the Messiah, the true king of Israel. Now remember what was inside the ark. What was inside the ark? The word of God, the bread from heaven, and the priestly staff. Who dwelt in the womb of Mary but the word of God made flesh? The bread of heaven, Jesus who would call himself the bread from heaven, and who was also called the high priest. You see that? You see that? She's the ark. Now look at the very quickly that lesson in Revelation, all that, all that imagery. I just want you to see this. Notice that the first thing that John, who, wrote, who writes Revelation, the first thing that John sees is the ark of the covenant and the temple, and then immediately next he sees a woman giving birth to the Messiah. The New Testament, everybody, I'm not making this up, the New Testament is trying to say to all of us, friends, the Ark of the Covenant is here, and the Ark is her. It's Mary who would be with the new king. Now, how am I supposed to end a sermon with that insight? I don't know. <laughs> so here's what I got. If you study the New Testament, all of us are really called to be Arks of the covenant where Jesus dwells the word of God dwells in us we eat the bread the bread of heaven is to dwell in us we're all called to be priests we're all called to be priests and I guess what I would say to you in, in closing with this is that you know with that same spirit that filled Mary that filled Elizabeth let us go out of here and just set out with, with, and catch somebody on fire. Catch somebody around you on fire with the joy of the Spirit. This is our mission, everyone. And don't wait around. Let's make haste. Let's make haste and fulfill our mission. Thanks be to God.